This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Danielle spotted Kevin from across the street. He was wearing a turquoise blue long sleeve shirt and light colored jeans. Right away, she thought, this guy is hot. He was just like Mr. Tall, Dark and Handsome. This was in the 1990s. They were both students at Boston University and had volunteered to help out during freshman orientation. They ended up directing traffic together. From my perspective there, that was where our friendship started. That's Kevin. They spent hours together that day, joking and laughing a lot. Danielle was smitten. And Kevin, he really liked Danielle. I thought she was really fun. I just had a great time with her and... It's like, yeah, this is somebody I definitely want to spend more time with. Danielle invited Kevin over to her place. She said he could do his laundry or use her computer. And he was like, okay, great. Like, we're friends. And I was like, huh, all right. (laughs) And it was obvious he was friend-zoning me. Kevin says he did feel attracted to Danielle. There was a sexual attraction there. Because she just had an energy that I dug. But he really valued their friendship, and he didn't want to mess that up. Eventually, after months of hanging out nonstop, they kissed at a keg party. They dated. They married. Danielle and Kevin became Mr. and Mrs. Robinson. They've been together for more than 20 years now. They have three kids. But this question of attraction has come up over the years. Danielle thinks of herself as average-looking and her husband as really handsome. She says her grandmother always told her she would never find a husband because of her weight. And here is what the grandma said when Danielle brought Kevin home. He's great. He's too attractive for you. Danielle says she also heard those kinds of messages from other people. I put him through graduate school for his MBA, and there were multiple people who came up to me and said that he should leave me for somebody more attractive for his career. Which, you never came out and told me that. It's brutal. It's brutal to hear that. Those people are terrible. Danielle remains convinced that her husband is way more attractive than she is. Kevin says that's nonsense. What I've told her is that if somebody else talked about you the way you talk about you, I'd, I'd hate them and I'd probably do something unpleasant to them. He says his wife has a lot of attractive qualities. She has an energy that just... She lights up a room. Friends and family didn't always understand the attraction between Kevin and Danielle. But the thing is, we're not all attracted to the same things. I know, like, these ideas are out there. I can't overstate how empirically incorrect they are. That's attraction researcher Paul Eastwick. We are idiosyncratic creatures that desire other people for idiosyncratic reasons. It is commonly the case that you will find this person very attractive and your other friend who's also attracted to that gender doesn't feel the same way that you do. But what creates that attraction in the first place? Are we drawn to physical features, beauty, the way somebody laughs or treats other people with kindness? On this episode, we'll explore attraction, how it's kindled, and why we are often totally wrong about who we might be attracted to. To get started, let's hear more from Paul Eastwick. He is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Davis, where he heads the Attraction and Relationships Research Laboratory. Paul says, sure, physical beauty plays a role, but it's often overstated. Many of the things that actually appeal to us about somebody are are things we don't even really necessarily notice or don't come to conscious awareness. It might be something about their voice or the way that they move when they walk or just sort of the way they 
cock their head when they laugh. I mean, it's all of these small things that are going to end up appealing to you specifically. Small things that are unique to individuals and really hard to capture or measure. Do you have any sense where those idiosyncratic things come from? How do we develop these micro-preferences? Yeah, this is, I mean, in many ways, this is the million-dollar question, Mm -hmm. right? This is the thing that we're only now starting to get a handle on. But I guess I would note this. A preference that you have is much more likely to be bound to a particular person, not something that is true about you in general. So let me explain what I mean by that. It is unlikely that there are forces in your past or things in your genes that gave you a preference for uh, the way that a particular person looks when they laugh, right? It's not something that you're going to consistently experience across different people. In other words, the extent to which you have a particular type, wherever those ideas come from, it's unlikely to be very stable. But what is very real and is worth queuing into is that it's very real that when this person acts this particular way, that you find it appealing or not. And often that's what I try to tell people to trust, right? When they're meeting somebody, this person doesn't seem in the abstract like they should be your type. You never found yourself like, like you're going to date a yoga instructor. Like that strikes you as odd. But there's something about this person the way they move, the, the way they talk, the way their mind works, that you just find appealing. Trust that. At the same time, if, you know, hey, this, is, this person checks all the boxes. This person has everything that I think is going to make my life better. And yet, you know, every time they describe what it is they like, you know, the last movie, this, I just can't seem to engage or care about what they're saying. Trust that gut instinct, too right? That a lot of it is in the way that particular people come across to us, not in some, you know, stable type that that we need to sort of fit into this missing box. At the same token, you know, you just described a person tuning out and the other person is talking about a movie or whatever. Yeah. But is it possible to get beyond that? So let's say that happens on the first date and you're just like, blah, blah, blah. Well, this person never shut up, right? <laughs> can, I get, <laughs> can I get over that? Should I give it another try? Should I maybe say, eh, maybe next time I'll be more attracted to them? Yeah, that, this is a great point, too, is that often, especially, and, you know, the apps encourage this, people bail too early, right? Mm-hmm. They bail after a lackluster initial impression. I mean, the reality is that it takes a while to really have a sense of whether you click with somebody or not. We should not be expecting fireworks when we initially meet somebody. In the past, before the apps, you didn't have to make a call that soon because if you were meeting people through your various social networks, right? Just sort of running into people occasionally because they were friends of friends. You didn't have to make a call about whether you wanted to date this person or not, right? You could sort of just let the feelings ebb and flow and uh, sort of see where that takes you. So the instinct that we have to make a decision quickly, I think, puts us in this mindset where we say, you know, fireworks or I'm walking away from this. So it is often the case that we don't get a sense of how we really feel about somebody over time. And that the most common situation is that as we get to know somebody better, we like them more. Is it enough more to recover from a bad initial impression? You know, sometimes maybe not, but but it is certainly possible. Are fireworks a predictor of of relationship or of, you know, outcomes (laughs) At all. I think we've sort of come to accept that fireworks ought to be there and there has to be the sizzle and the electric current and whatnot. But is that even real? It is in the sense that the attraction that you feel for somebody when you first meet 
it's a decent predictor of mm-hmm. the attraction that you experience uh, weeks and months later. And that's not just because, you know, hot people are going to continue to be hot. It's also true for some of that idiosyncratic desire that people experience as well, right? But it's not the end-all be-all, right? It is very different to then get to a place where you're saying, like, you know, the fireworks need to be there from moment one. It is very common that those things come weeks, months, or even years after you first meet somebody, right? There, there is no, you know, uh, statute of limitations on when these experiences have to happen. <laughs> uh, they can happen much, much later in the process. I was wondering about the evolutionary aspect of attraction. What would you say is the evolutionary purpose of us feeling attraction? Because yes, it can get us to choose a mate, but it can also get us to to break up unions or to leave partners or to leave children. So yeah. it, is it all part of just procreate at all costs or, or where does it sit? Uh, I think about this question a lot. And, you know, I, I always go back to the basic general principle that we like things because we want to be around those things, right? This is like one of the simplest ideas in all of psychology, right? Is that liking leads to doing. Liking leads to things that allow you to continue to be around and enjoy whatever that thing is that you like. That is true for people as well. And what happens in relationships typically is that When people hit it off, when they find that they work well together, it's not just that they end up liking each other. It's that they engage in all sorts of motivated reasoning that sort of insulate that relationship and protect it against outside forces. Because the reality is it would be very hard to weather all the trials of life with another person if you weren't to some extent insulated and buffered from uh, frustrations or temptations that were going to come along, right? It would be very hard to maintain the sort of ongoing interdependent relationships that we have with each other. If every time, you know, you know, somebody cute walked along, you pursued that person instead, right? That's, that's actually a bad system if it's designed that way. And that's not what most people do. Most people, when they get into a relationship find that person far more desirable than they find other people, right? That's not to say that infidelity doesn't happen. Of course it does. But most of the time, we are looking at our partners in sort of this idealized way. And that is is part of this defense mechanism that we have to try to preserve that relationship over time. Those defense mechanisms don't always last, right? They People can experience a lot of trials and a lot of challenges, and it slowly chips away at those defenses. But those defenses, I think, are some of the most important evolved tools that we have to maintain our relationships. We also got some questions from listeners, and I ran a few of them by Paul, like this one. Is immediate attraction a chemical reaction or an established pattern that your brain recognizes based on past data? Probably both, right? Mm -hmm. I do think there are, you know, sort of patterns that we create. There's some evidence out there that if somebody engages in a behavior that reminds you even unconsciously of, let's say, an ex and it's maybe one of the behaviors that you didn't uh, despise about your ex, that that will sort of call up other feelings about your ex. Uh, but, but, but there are going to be chemical catalysts in the brain that then, you know, sort of bring those experiences to conscious awareness, right? Because everything that's going on in the brain is some combination of chemical and electrical reactions. So it's going to be some combination of, of both, right? The pattern is there in the wiring, but there are going to be critical uh, chemical reactions that make us aware of how we're feeling. Next question is also a little bit along these lines, and it goes like this. I've heard a lot about attraction in person being related to smell 
or a person's pheromones. How accurate is this? Well, it's certainly the case that smell is an important driver of attraction in the sense that, you know, once you're close enough to a person and able to be intimate with them, that can be a key component of how you feel about them. A lot of times, right, we don't know how we feel about somebody sexually until we have a chance to be with them and see how it goes. We're creatures that are kind of designed to, this comes from the biologist Richard Promi, who came up with this point and that it's like, you know, humans don't have mating preferences. We have remating preferences. We want to be with somebody. And if it's good, we'd like to be with them again. Right. You want to try to resample positive experiences with another person. And that's often what sex is. And part of that is about the things that you can only experience once you're close to somebody, like how they smell. Whether or not we're ever going to be in a position to identify chemically what is uniquely appealing to you, I mean, I think we are a long way (laughs) for me being able to do that in any uh, sort of tailored way. But it's certainly very real in the experience, right? That when you're close to somebody and you like how they smell, you know, you know it. I think resampling positive experiences is the least romantic way we could. <laughs> yep. That's yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it is, it's like this very like computational way of thinking about what people are doing, right? I mean, that's what we're, you know, that was good. Let's do it again and yes. again and again. And after time passes, now, you know, you, you find that this person is around all the time and you're delighted with it. And you can put it in your wedding vows. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Paul Eastwick is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Davis, and he heads the Attraction and Relationships Research Laboratory. Coming up, a lot of dating now happens on apps, but what really gets us to swipe right? People don't necessarily want a supermodel. People want someone who's smiling because it makes you seem kind and approachable and somebody with whom you could form a relationship. That's next on The Pulse. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests Help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. On this week's episode of Wildcard, comedian Bowen Yang says you don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness. I get in my own way by, like, over-privileging the present. That's so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present. I feel like being present is overrated. I'm Rachel Martin. Join us for NPR's Wild Card Podcast, the game where cards control the conversation. When you hear Birmingham, Alabama, you might think about the civil rights movement, but maybe not about baseball. But as the oldest pro ballpark in America, Rickwood Field saw the struggle for freedom play out right there on the dirt and grass. I'm Roy Wood Jr. I grew up in Birmingham, and I'm going to tell you this whole story. Listen to Road to Rickwood from WWNO and WRKF, part of the NPR Network. This message comes from Tinkercast. For curious kids and grown-ups, Wow in the World is an adventure-filled cartoon for the ear podcast all about amazing innovations in science and technology. Listen to Wow in the World wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about attraction and what fuels it. A lot of people search for partners online, swiping through seemingly endless options of potential mates. The apps and platforms gather a lot of data about people looking for love. So has all of this information led to any new insights into attraction and what we're really drawn to? Alan Yu has more. Jess Carboner was feeling lonely when she started a PhD program in sociology at the University of California, Los Angeles in 2009. She was single and looking to change that. There were 10 people in my cohort in the sociology department, none of whom I was interested in forging a romantic partnership with. So I signed up for an online dating site and created an online dating profile. 
she saw a world of potential romantic partners and how they presented themselves to try and get matched. She could also see what her competition was doing, other women in her age range looking for dates. It made her think about her own profile and more. How did I talk about my academic life? How did I talk about what I was searching for relative to other women in my demographic group who were also seeking out similar men? And so that was just fascinating to me, and I knew I had to study this. She had gone into her PhD program thinking she would study parent-child relationships. Now, she decided to study online dating. But to do that, she needed access to the kind of data that online dating companies were collecting. After talking to other academics, she also knew those companies would not just give their data to a researcher. Some people told me the data sets were like $30,000. Some people told me they were like $100,000. And as a grad student making $30,000 a year and being subsidized by my parents to live in Los Angeles, I knew that was not an option for me. Fortunately, a friend's sister was a professional matchmaker and wanted to start a dating site. Jess made an agreement. She would help the matchmaker with the site. And in exchange, she would get access to all the data. It worked out for her PhD research and then her career. That site is no longer around, but Jess became famous as the in-house sociologist for the dating apps Tinder and Bumble. She did the same kind of research she did when she was in academia, data analyses and in-depth interviews. The difference is that she now had access to all the data from millions of people on these apps and could recruit users for focus groups. You have access in a way that you don't as an academic where you can't just go up to an engineer and say, hey, I'm interested in this question. Can you pull this data for me? And you get it by you know, the next day. She learned a lot. For example, what makes for a good profile picture? People don't necessarily want a supermodel. And people think that, the pouty, Kate Moss-esque look where you are not necessarily appearing kind and approachable is desirable because that's what we see on magazine covers, on Calvin Klein ads. But in reality, people want someone who's smiling because it makes you seem kind and approachable and somebody with whom you could form a relationship. Her findings benefited the companies because they could understand their users better. For example, her findings about profile pictures turned into a feature where the app would suggest what kinds of photos people should use. She also found that people tend to read dating site bios more closely after matching with someone. And many members struggled to write bios that made them stand out from the crowd. She also interviewed people who were older and looking for partners in their 60s or 70s. I learned a very interesting phrase when speaking to many of the women who are older. They didn't want to be a nurse or a purse. They didn't want to have to take care of someone who they hadn't known for a long time. They talked about, you know, my husband died. I took care of him and I don't want to have to monitor the health and care for somebody who I'm just meeting now. I want to find somebody who is in good health. They also didn't want to have to financially support someone else. The data Jess had access to when she worked at Tinder and Bumble is something that social psychologist Ben Carney would love to have. My sense is that the dating apps are sitting on an absolute goldmine, a treasure trove of data on human interaction and relationships and attraction. He's at UCLA and has been studying relationships for decades. He says the apps have the benefit of a giant group of people to study. And they also do not need to rely on people telling researchers what they find attractive. They can just see it from the swipes. That's very, very powerful. Because often what people say they want doesn't necessarily correspond to what they actually want or what they actually do. People say that they want to watch documentaries, but what they actually watch is The Bachelor. He says there are drawbacks too, a big one being that people using dating apps are probably younger and more tech-savvy, and that companies ultimately want their products to succeed, not to publish research. I'm not sure that a question that I would be interested in asking could be easily translated into a profit for the company. It's been difficult for me, and it's not that I haven't tried, to convince the owners of those data treasure chests 
to relinquish those data and allow me or, or colleagues access to them. Access to data has not been a problem for biological anthropologist Helen Fisher. She has been studying love and personality for decades. Since the mid-2000s, she's been working for Match, the company that now owns some of the biggest names in online dating, Tinder, Hinge, Match.com, and OkCupid. She does not study the people who use those sites. The company commissions research from her to study personality. She says that has been an unbelievable blessing. I create a questionnaire to see to what degree you express certain personality traits. That questionnaire has now been taken by over 15 million people in 40 countries. And I never could have done that at an academic institution. I would have had data on 123 students in my basic anthropology classes. She also publishes an annual report on single people in the U.S. That work has led her to questions she had not really thought to ask before. What do you first notice about somebody when you meet them? The top three things were somebody's teeth, somebody's grammar, and somebody's self-confidence. And everybody was stumped and couldn't figure out what was, what's this about. And I said, you know, from a Darwinian evolutionary perspective, that's really logical because your teeth say a great deal about your age. Grammar says a great deal about your education and your background. Your self-confidence says a great deal about your psychological stability. Now, would I have really thought of that questions if, if I wasn't being employed to come up with 200 questions by next Thursday? Helen says the work she does while at Match led her to understand personalities on a much deeper level. Her next book is about how she uses that knowledge to understand not just love, but human behavior more generally. But despite how much knowledge the dating apps have led to, Helen says the one thing they cannot really do is promise you a perfect match. These dating sites are not even dating sites. They're introducing sites. That's all they do is introduce you. And who you match with or swipe right on also depends a lot on your own state of mind, says Alexandra Solomon, a clinical psychologist and professor at Northwestern University. She teaches a very popular course called Marriage 101. We really can get seduced into thinking that attraction is about your snap gut reaction to a picture of that person. When in reality, attraction has a lot to do about one's own readiness to open oneself up, to let yourself feel the pull of attraction. You could meet the same person today and not be drawn to them. But if you meet them five years from now, at a different moment in your life, perhaps you've just gone through a move or you've just gone through a breakup or you've just gotten a promotion where you are more primed. There are certain moments in our own lives that crack us open for relationship. That's what Jess Carboneau, the sociologist we heard from at the beginning, concluded as well. She said she had not really considered that when she started her online dating and research journey all those years ago. So I was learning about the dating world while studying it simultaneously. And I think that I was naive about how people's personal hangups got in their way. And I studied these demographic characteristics, thinking that's what matters. You know, if people are compatible in these ways, it should work. Her work on online dating led her to now work on a doctorate in clinical psychology. Jess says she realized that whether someone ended up being attracted to someone else came down to their childhood, past relationships, where they are in life. Factors that even the most well-resourced dating apps do not and cannot measure. In the meantime, dating apps have also worked for her in her personal life. She found a partner and they are now married. They met online after multiple dating apps matched them. 
That story was reported by Alan Yu. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about attraction and what creates that special spark. It's a pretty complicated issue to parse out for humans, and we tend to think it's more straightforward with other animals. I mean, we don't call it animal attraction for nothing, right? But turns out mating is also pretty nuanced in the animal kingdom. Grant Hill has more. In 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species, his groundbreaking treatise on natural selection, the idea that over the course of generations, species change and evolve in ways that favor their survival. But something gnawed at Darwin, a potential hole in his theory of evolution. Darwin sent a letter to this famous botanist, Asa Gray, and he said something like, every time I gaze at the peacock's tail, it makes me sick. That's Michael Ryan. He is a professor of integrative biology at the University of Texas and the author of A Taste for the Beautiful, The Evolution of Attraction. Michael says the male peacock did not fit into Darwin's new theory of natural selection. The bird's ornate tail was like a huge, heavy target on its back, a big sign for predators screaming, I'm here, I'm slow, eat me. If anything, these traits should decrease survivorship, not increase it. Eventually, it led Darwin to believe that something else, some parallel force, must be at play. Not just natural selection, but also sexual selection. Natural selection favors traits that enhance survivorship. Sexual selection favors traits that enhance an individual's ability to acquire mates. The theory explained why so many other males across the animal kingdom have seemingly useless characteristics and abilities. Generally speaking, because females often produce far fewer eggs than males produce sperm, females have to be more choosy about their partners. But what exactly are they looking for? What fuels their preferences? Michael is trying to figure that out, and he's focusing his efforts on the mating call of the Tungara frog in Panama. They are small, brown, and covered in warts. The males sing to attract mates. So all of these males, they make a wine here, and all of these males can add to that wine a chuck. Michael was curious about the variation, which kind of calls female Tungara frogs prefer. So he constructed a little simulated frog love shack, placing a female Tangara frog in between two speakers. The speaker on one side would replay a call with just a whine sound. Yeah. The speaker on the other side, a whine and a chuck. Yeah. 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 And? 85% of the time, they prefer the whine chuck. Michael scanned the female frog's brain and saw neural excitement whenever a chuck sounded. Why? He really doesn't know. Some deep evolutionary response. But he can replicate the effects and add to it. Hack it, essentially. He found that the more chucks he played at the end of the mating call, the more a female responded. If the chucks makes the male more attractive, and if he's out there to attract mates, why doesn't he always make chucks? It's not like making the noise took a ton of extra effort. Michael looked into it. Energetically, it doesn't cost anything. I mean, we've measured the energy they use. Then Michael heard from a bat researcher, a buddy of his, that he had seen one of his bats eating one of Michael's frogs in the wild. It gave Michael an idea. He brought one of those bats into the simulated frog love shack. We played him a wine from one speaker, a wine chuck from another speaker. They fly directly to the wine chuck, sometimes even landing on the speaker trying to get to the frog inside. So male frogs have to walk a delicate line, make just enough extra noise to get the ladies, but not enough to get eaten. It took Michael years to just scratch the surface of just this one frog's mating ritual. And each species 
has their own complicated preferences for mating. <laughs> Lauren Augustine is the curator for reptiles and amphibians at the Philadelphia Zoo. So we need to account for all of these different behaviors as well as their social dynamics. A lot goes into creating just one habitat here at the Reptile House, and we have over 50. Part of her job is to make sure the creatures under her care proliferate. Reptiles and amphibians use a lot of chemical cues that obviously is really hard for us to interpret or understand. She's seen something as subtle as changes to barometric pressure trigger breeding. Studies show animals born in captivity are far less likely to successfully reproduce than those born in the wild. So Lauren is constantly making adjustments to her habitats, trying to stoke some fire in her cold-blooded animals, like a frog from Madagascar. And I built an enclosure that was basically individual 10-gallon tanks filled with sphagnum and cocoa shell mixed together. So each frog could burrow in its cage. And then they had PVC tubes that connected to a big middle tank, right? And then I warmed them up and I rained on them and flooded their individual enclosures so they would come up and then meet in the middle to try to create an explosive breeding situation. Did it work? It did not. (laughs) How much time did that take you, though? It took me two years of working with that feces before I thought up the idea and then probably a year to implement. (laughs) Some of the animals she cares for are in danger. Their genetic partners carefully picked from a national stud book, then shipped in from mother zoos across the country. Getting those animals to breed is crucial. Millions of years of evolution on the line. We have a pair of Galapagos tortoises here that are a recommended breeding pair. Last spring, we introduced the male to the females. And sure enough, we did get three clutches of eggs this year from our 99-year-old Galapagos tortoise female mommy, which is fantastic. The eggs never developed into hatchlings. Still, it was a promising result from a difficult equation. It's hard to set up the perfect conditions to fuel attraction when you have no idea what perfect means. Like how to get a wrinkly old tortoise to feel some magic with a carefully chosen stud. They're genetically a pair, but that doesn't mean that they're a pair, right? It doesn't mean that he's going to like her. It doesn't mean she's going to like him and that they are compatible um, and we don't really give them that option. It's, it's kind of infrequent with reptiles and amphibians right now. So we don't really look at those pheromones and, and preference. The Philadelphia Zoo recently did score a win in kindling attraction with Chester, a spirited Francois Langer, a monkey the zoo's primate curator Michael Stern describes as businesslike. He's a little bit standoffish. He kind of does his thing as a male. He surveys around and, and watches what's going on and protects his family. Uh, but as soon as he saw these, these uh, young females moving in with him of the same species, he knew exactly what to do. And the result? And these were the first Francois Langers born here at Philadelphia Zoo in our 150-year history. That story was reported by Grant Hill. Coming up... A dance floor attraction leads to a picture-perfect romance. I, in the reflection of Bo, had meaning I could make for myself in the world. But things take an unexpected turn. We were so great. I was like, why did Bo ruin something so wonderful that we had? That's next on The Pulse. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to the indicator from Planet Money and NPR. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money. Your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. 
What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about attraction and what fuels it. What initially attracts us to somebody doesn't always last. The spark dies. The jokes get old. Desire gives way to boredom. But just as attraction can disappear, it can also transform over time. Nicole Curry has this story about two people whose attraction for one another ultimately changed and why that shift was a good thing. The first thing Art Chandersakran told me was that she watched a lot of Bollywood films growing up. Her mother would play them to teach her about her Indian culture. And so the predominant theme that comes up in Bollywood movies are that of romance, but a romance that's just so perfect. And so when I think of Bollywood films, I think about idealized love. That, that is the kind of love you start searching for. Someone who would truly do anything for you, sacrifice their comfort for your comfort. But soon enough, Art learned that these movies were just that, movies, especially when she got to college. The year was 2008. Art was in her sophomore year living in Detroit. She was an exceptional student, a star on the debate team, and a go-getter. In terms of romance, Art hit a wall especially after she went after a guy she had a huge crush on. I gave him a book called The Affected Provincial's Guide to Life, Volume 1. And I gave with him a card that said I'd love to be caught in a bad romance with him. And that was when he was like, I don't think this will work. His name was Nick, and Art thought he was perfect. So naturally, she was heartbroken. Because I knew that I wouldn't find someone else like that. And I think my friend Shay could tell that my, my sparkle wasn't sparkling. I wasn't glimmering all over the place. And she was like, why don't we all go out? And I was like, okay, fine. I guess, I guess I'll put myself out there again. I mean, no one's Nick, but okay. Art went out with her friends and had an amazing night. They danced while school responsibilities melted away. And soon, Art began to forget about her crush. And then I noticed Bo. I remember him and his friend joking around. And I could tell them that they didn't take life too seriously. And... I was always known as this like really heavy human who took life very seriously. And I think I appreciated how light and fresh and hopeful Bo was. Bo was a friend of a friend and the attraction was mutual. So they went on a date. I take Bo to the art museum and I take him to this painting of Kehinda Wiley's which is the officer of the Hussars. And it's so cool. This is the guy who ends up creating the Obama portrait. And I think Bo's perfect because Bo's curious about this piece. Bo's interested in all the things I'm interested in, but not from like a, oh, I'm trying to like get it kind of way, but more in a, wow, I didn't know that. And I didn't know I wanted to know that kind of way. And just like a great first date, they didn't want the night to end. So they went to a diner. Where we stay up until the morning. This couple buys us a breakfast. And, you know, almost as if we were a couple that had been together forever. Art and Bo quickly made it official. It was kind of like two worlds harmonizing instead of colliding. 
art was into education, studying, and looking at the world from different perspectives. Bo was into having a good time and enjoying life as it is. The two complemented each other because even though they were different, they accepted one another. And this had never really happened for either of them. They had both felt like outcasts most of their life. I was no longer invisible. And it felt like I was invisible, like, to my parents. It felt like I was invisible to, you know, being just one student in a classroom. But I, in the reflection of Bo, had meaning I could make for myself in the world. Art and Bo went on to do what serious couples do. They met each other's parents. Their friends became each other's friends. One big happy family. Our friends loved us together. Our friends knew that it was the happiest they had ever seen us. It suddenly felt like we were so inseparable. Things first began to change when Bo's friends started smoking weed. And Bo was sad all the time, too. This was a year and a half into the relationship. And it felt like Bo wasn't keeping up getting an education so that we could become this boy plus girl equals marriage and baby story. And Bo was stressed out by these expectations. So the breakup happens one day when Bo drives over and says, I don't think this is working out. Art's Bollywood romance had crumbled. She cried for hours while Bo sat with her. And then she got really angry. How dare you break up with me? Why are you breaking up with me? Didn't I do enough? Are you kidding me? We were so great. I was like, why did Bo ruin something so wonderful that we had? Art tried to keep her distance, but she and Bo shared the same friends now, so they still saw each other over the years. They bickered a lot, especially when Art would see Bo out on dates. And that's when Art began to notice a change. She would see Bo out with other women, and then with men. Over time, the former lovers slowly developed a friendship, and Art began to notice Bo was acting a little differently. After a few years... Bo finally explained what was happening. I felt like I was setting myself up to be stuck in a relationship I wasn't sure was like going to be the one that I wanted to stay in for the rest of my life. Because they realized that our relationship wasn't what they were looking for romantically, even though it was everything they needed in a friendship. Bo explained to Art that they had realized that they were born into the wrong identity. And so Bo needed to transition. Art also realized that she had been a little too hard on Bo for breaking up with her. I was able to let go and forgive Bo for dumping me because I'm like, oh, that makes sense. We were never meant to be together in that way. When I transitioned, I wanted to be someone who I wanted to be. I wanted to be pretty. I wanted to be feminine. But um, my support at the time was kind of threadbare. Uh, didn't really have, like, many people I could rely on. I would confide in art, in art here and there. The comfort Bo and Art had felt with each other while they were dating was now reemerging in this friendship. And Bo really needed that now. It's very easy to feel like people don't want you around or that you're not welcome anymore or that the things you have to share don't make sense to other people, so don't bother sharing. In the shame and guilt, they had estranged themselves from their own friends, their own social network. They were hiding from the world because they knew they didn't look the way they were supposed to. So Art would encourage Bo. They could call me and I would be like, great, what are we doing today? What are we doing today? And they couldn't call their mom. They couldn't call their dad. And she would tell me like, hey, yeah, just 
go outside. Like, you have to at least meet people if you want to build community, and you're not going to just fall into it if, if you continue to just self-isolate. And so knowing that at least one person can exist for Bo in a place that categorically hates them for who they are, that's really messed up to me that people don't know Bo, can hate Bo, when the only choice I can see is loving Bo. Eventually, Bo made a leap and found a small trans community to confide in, people who really got what it was like to be in their shoes. Soon, Bo began to leave their home and feel a sense of pride in their decision. Now, more than 10 years since Art and Bo first met, the two are still friends. Art and Bo don't live in the same state, and they don't get to talk as often. But they both let me know that they will always care deeply about one another, and they will always enjoy the story of how Art's first boyfriend turned out to be her very best girlfriend. That story was produced by Nicole Curry, and Art did eventually find the romance she was looking for, she ended up marrying Nick, the guy she had a huge crush on in college who had initially turned her down. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Our intern is Jaden George. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday.